Welcome to the pod. Thank you, Miss. Thank Welcome you for back. having me. Welcome Yet again. Back to the pod. I'm back. Hell yeah, you are. Um, so yeah, we're just arguing off camera. I just thought we should record it because I think people should talk about this. This is like more, I think this is like what people want to know. This is the goods. So rephrase the question. Do you want to recap what we were talking about, how you and I were responding, and then I'll continue. Absolutely. So Mitch and I have been debating uh, as as the like designer engineer duo does here. Uh, slight background on myself. I do both design and engineering, for those that don't know. And Mitch does just design. And occasionally we butt heads, and I love it. Um, because I think there's a lot of things that are correct about how developers work on the front end. I think there's a lot of things that are wrong about it as well, uh, and vice versa. I think the same exact way about design, how we teach designers, and some of the paradigms that designers fall into as they're working in the software in which we choose, be it Figma or Framer right now, uh, maybe Sketch for the 1%. Uh, the the topic of discussion off camera revolved around Tailwind, which Mitch, for whatever reason, has beef with. I don't <laughs> understand it in the slightest because here here was the the question I posed to Mitch, and I'm going to let him answer it here. If you are designing a card, let's say let's just use a card for an example, anything goes in it. How do you decide what padding you use for the card? What goes through your head first? Go. And and this is in relation to Tailwind and how you would do it with Tailwind or not with Tailwind. I just I just want to hear hear your answer here. For Literally, okay. To a card. Okay, in so Figma, I have, you're setting up a card. What what happens? I have the best answer to this question because no one is going to be able to answer it the way I answer it today. This is the best answer. Ready? I'm ready. I have a 10x engineer. I don't need to care. <laughs> so if you. <laughs> you, he's he's gonna need something to wrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, though. we talk about it, but he's he's good. He's really good. I mean, that doesn't I, I, answer I'll it be, though. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. The reason why I'm not answering it, like, how do I do? Because it depends on the developer. Because all that specification is just communication to a developer, right? If you're the one building it, you obviously know how it's constructed, so you know how to prepare the card for it. Cards are wild. Sometimes I have full width elements so it goes from zero to 100 of the of i just the want to hear card. about the padding the content right. that goes but, inside but what of the i'm card. saying is what i'm saying is if you have to have fixated padding sometimes you want to also not have padding because the elements have to go full width sure sometimes let's say in this instance everything it's it's just a headline and some text and that's it what Why, what kind of padding are you applying here that's all i want <laughs> Just, just give me, a, just give me a number value here, man. Sixteen. Perfect. Awesome. So, why did you say sixteen? Because I'm used to sixteen. Why sixteen and not uh, seventeen or fifteen? Because it's, it's part of the eight point grid. Perfect. Thank you. And so, you know, to use an eight pixel grid, it's interesting. Tailwind does that. So, I would say, you know. P, I think it's like P. I'm not saying that Tailwind is bad as like a framework. I think it's great. I think it actually does a lot of great stuff. And it also helps like we've used it at many companies I've worked at before. Um, and well, now they use it. 
Uh, and, and I had to actually help design with it, which was not very easy because the developers did not want to change and break certain things that I needed to get the design to be better because the defaults are not great. They're good. They're not great. I think we all can agree on that. There should, first of all, there should never be great defaults because you can't, you can't have great defaults unless you know a specific use case. That's what I love about it is Tailwind essentially is how designers design for developers. And I sure. think it is the perfect way for designers and engineers to meet in the middle. And I, I, if, if a designer was to say like, I want to get into web and like, I need to understand developers. What do I do? Just learn Tailwind. I mean, at the lowest end of the spectrum, you have a framework that you now understand and you can talk to a developer and pick and, you know, feel what's wrong in a design. On the best end of that spectrum, you can be a front-end engineer now. You don't need to do like crazy CSS hacks like we all had. To. I mean, CSS went from single style sheet, put everything in it with a crazy amount of, you know, needing extra code to be able to like target specific nested elements to then introducing SAS, which allowed us to use nested elements, mix-ins, um, you know, variables, things like that. Awesome to then, you know, these frameworks came about. You had React, you were able to use um, CSS and JS solutions like emotion style components. Great. Now you've moved it out of the CSS file into your actual component. Fantastic. Now we have Tailwind, which is awesome because you don't have to write any CSS and you can still have all of the beauty of CSS because it's all just laid out in front of you. It's exactly how you design in a library. Oh, I hate going into the library, so I don't think I would like that. But it's not a lot. <laughs> think about the li think about the library not being your local public library. Are you trying you to convince to me? Are you trying to convince me to use this? What, what, what's the no, point? I'm just I'm trying to convince you to understand that it is. Not perfect, but exactly how designers design. Sure. I agree. God damn it, Mitch. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. I don't have any problem with that. I just don't have to worry about it. At least not right now. I think we've we've misconstrued this discipline that is design. And, and so many designers are so far away from engineering. And they don't have to be. I kind of like that they're far away from engineering because they're solving different problems where engineering has to solve also different problems. I think that when they are able to come together and understand a little bit enough, just enough about the other person's discipline or the other colleague's discipline, then, then magic can happen because you can get people to agree on solutions more easily because they're communicating the same way. Most of the time, developers are like, I don't want to do that because X, Y, and Z, it's hard to do. I have to refactor all this other code. Da, 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 da. And then the designer's like, yeah, but like this is better for this solution. I have this thing, but now I'm constrained by the code. So it's kind of like this debt design problem that continuously happens anyways. But I don't, I don't think that you really need to be a coder or no code to be a great designer to work with developers. I think that it helps. I think that you're able to communicate better. Um, I, in, very fortunately, very fortunately, I'm in a situation where I don't even need to know necessarily how to code. I prefer pseudocode than anything. 
it it helps you. I'm anytime I do pseudocode, especially when I'm trying to describe. Can, can, an can issue, you break that down to, for some people who don't know what that means? Absolutely. So pseudocode is let's say you need a let's say it's a loop or something. You need something to to repeat itself. Um, maybe it has recursion in it, which recursion is just repeating on top of itself, doing the same thing again at the most basic level. Um, and it's very complex, the thing you're trying to do. Pseudocode would essentially be just describing what that thing is in layman's terms, not using anything super technical, not talking about variables or loops, anything specifically related to the coding language that you're writing in. Um, and instead using a, you know everyday terms. Uh, what it does for you, one, is it great for communication? Uh, basically, if you're writing pseudocode or just talking pseudocode, it is very easily understood by project managers, developers, engineers, I don't know, leadership. Anything. It's kind of like almost talking to chat GPT where you're able to yes. ask it to do something. It actually does it and then gives you the result back in a human format instead of a coded format. That's and what's cool. also great about it is it helps you break out of the technical aspect of coding to the point that you'll usually figure out what you're actually trying to do by yeah. talking it out. Uh, there's this thing called rubber duck coding, which is essentially not 100% pseudocode. It doesn't have to be, but just describing to somebody else or to yourself out loud how you're trying to do something. Eight times out of 10, if you're having a problem with something in that realm, if you do this, you're going to figure it out and feel like a dumbass for not getting it sooner. It's a fantastic phenomenon. Okay, so um, I think that I'll, to summarize this part of the discussion and then we can move on to the next topic maybe. Uh, I was saying that I can just, just pseudocode, right? I can just talk to my developers and explain this, how it should work and they know how to figure out how the code works, right? And if you have a really good developer, they're able to just parse that out and figure it out and not worry about, okay, uh, but I can't do it this way. I can't. No, they're just going to do it. And that's amazing. But what's great about it is that you don't need to know how to code. You just need to know how systems work. And in that case, pseudocode's fine. So if you're able to, I think, in my opinion, know pseudocode more than code, I think that you're probably better off for the long run because tools are changing, frameworks are changing. Like I would say Tailwind will probably be replaced in some, by something in the next couple of years or so that's even better, which is great. I hope it, hope it keeps getting better. But uh, principles should be retained right? Those things should be retained. And um, I guess the way I'll summarize this is just the best thing you should know is how to communicate with the right people, the right developers if you're a designer, designer um, design if you're a developer, but figure out that communication style with that other colleague of yours because it changes depending on the company. Like I don't need to know how to code at this company at the other companies that I was working at, I had to figure out a little bit more about the intricacies because I had to convince people that they needed to do it a certain way and that they could do it a certain way. And if I knew how the code worked a little bit more, then I knew I can create a more convincing argument. So that's, that's what all I'll say about that. So right now, I don't need to do that because we're not worried about how well the code or really how well the visual aesthetic looks. It's more about can we produce something that's functional, that's usable, 
that also solves a problem and fits the market's need. The only uh, two final points on this. Would you not say that that dependence on somebody else sucks though? Like, yeah, but I'm also not the one coding it. I don't, I I don't have a choice. I have to, I have to work with other people because I cannot code. Now, if I, if I was a developer, sure, maybe I don't have to worry about other people, but you're going to eventually worry about other people anyways, when you scale, you have to worry about other people. It's just an inevitable thing. That's what I hate. I, I love, I think that is, that is like my, my moat as as like a career strong point is wanting to like have self-reliance and and independence from everybody and it's not optimal by any means i've spent years teaching myself these different disciplines outside of just strictly design uh, be it engineering marketing product sales and these other things um but i feel my my ultimate goal is to just be the one man band. So are you expecting like in your next role or next couple roles from now, some, some role from now you expect to be solo creating your own thing, running your own thing all by yourself. That is, that is the goal, at least in one facet of my life. I think I'd like to have the solo preneur career path, own my own thing own every aspect of it, maybe contract pieces of it out if I need to, or just don't want to spend time on certain parts of it. Uh, But outside of that, I want to, I think I like that specifically because it's a small enough area that I can do other things. Like I, there's so many other projects I want to be involved with. And in those, I don't need to be doing everything. Like I, I assume to have partners in those areas as opposed to this venture. So I would say to that, in the past, I also tried that. But then I realized I fucking hate coding. And I love it because of how capable it is. But I fucking hate it because it's so annoying to learn. And it requires so much practice and thought. And I'd rather put that thought into other things. So I've come to the realization for myself, whether you agree with it or not, that it's an inevitability, it's inevitable, that I have to work with people that know more than me at certain things, and I shouldn't learn everything about everything. Because although I want that bubble that of I can do everything and I control, I am God in this world, this little bubble of mine, and I can make it, I can create it, I can destroy it, I can, you know, fuck everyone else, whatever. But like it, it's not a reality that I think for me would take me to the top. Because I need to rely on people who are better and I have to delegate to those who are better at certain things so I can worry about other things. So my goal now is figuring out what am I so good at, get really good at those things, scale things really quick and use people that, you know, you know, obviously pay them for what they're worth and, you know, share the value free labor but but exposure honestly if i can get free labor on this podcast editing i would i really would i was talking to bring last night i wish we can find (laughs) an editor that's our pitch right there yeah you want to edit podcasts (laughs) save mitch some time he's not i mean hey it's it's i think it's better for the world maybe maybe we'll turn out something great if if we have more if i'm more free time but um uh you know we are looking for an editor at some point so you know reach out and we'll see um, I think that would actually no, save and me a I, lot of time. 
That, that's such an IBM Mitch talking right there. Like I, more power to you because I appreciate it. Um, I think you and I are, wow, I just had a terrible voice track there. You and I are Hello, slightly different in the, um, you, you love the scale side of it. And I think that's super cool. The, the more business angle of it. I just, I love to code. I, I like, I got into it, hating it. And I think what I love most about it, and I hear people complain about the most, uh, which did definitely keep me from getting into it for a while was just how much changes so fast. But I think that's what I love about it. I mean, we're doing something new and maybe not innovative. I feel there's a lot of recycling and we can talk about that on another podcast because it's, it's prevalent and crazy right now. Um, but uh, point being, I love that there's so much to pick up and new things to do so often in engineering as opposed to, oh, we, we introduced variables to Figma, which are an abstraction of how people need to be thinking about actual variables being used. Uh, but we did it because we're trying to get closer to how engineers think, but we, we still abstracted it. And I, I don't know, it's not enough for me. I think the, the principles of design are awesome. I love being able to reference history, but you get to a point with design where it, it's just a plateau. And I mean, not to say I'm like a fantastic designer. I think I'm good, not great. But I, I think once you hit the plateau, there's not much you can scale up on past that point. Uh, however, with engineering, things change so often that it's you know you need you, you're learning new languages, new libraries, whatever it is on a yearly basis. And I love that. I think that I think that. Yeah, we have very different perspectives on like the appreciation and the love for the actual work. I would love to spend more of my time building physical things because I think there's something to it that's just it's more permanent and digital can evaporate based on, you know, cloud service going down. <laughs> and I love like I got my my footing in digital design and I love it and I will continue doing it. And I have many plans for what to do with that soon. But I think that it's becoming evidently clear that the end of the road in digital design, strictly digital design, as a cupboard of skills is slowly showing its end for me. In that I think there's more out there that my design skills could leverage I could leverage with my design skills to actually help people with real problems. And I think that moving rectangles on the screen all day is great for making money. And, it, and a lot of companies need that to uh, produce a, a quality software that actually is successful, that actually does what it's asked, asked for. It actually is beautiful and elegant and whatever. But the long run, I do want to run my own business. Um, and I have some ideas with that. Uh, you know, we're trying to do this, this podcast and the newsletter and stuff. And that's going okay. Uh, I told you about the other day that I have this other little thing, this little domain that I bought, which my boss told me, uh, you know, that for my real work, uh, he, he's like, yeah, you're gonna have a lot of like, like problems with uh, some of some of the indexing of that because of the mm -hmm. some of the keywords yes. in it. But I, yes. I, I think that's a good thing. 
I think people trying to suppress it is going to make it more notable, more infamous. So it's kind of a strategy. Counterculture right there, man. Yeah. I, I, I just kind of want to say, don't really worry about what other people think anymore and just do really good work. And I think that's going to be rewarded a lot better than trying to follow the current. Like, I, I really don't want to do this whole, like, here's six hex values that you should be using in your next design. What the fuck? Like, and, and then there's like the whole like virtue signaling of like, you know, you need to include this percentage of people in your post that are this color and of this religion and of this orientation. And, and you know, this have this many hands and like, I, what is this bullshit? Like, I feel the like we're all following. is crazy. But it, it so sadly works because of these algorithms right now, be it like TikTok, YouTube. And I don't think it's the algorithms. And it's, it's what, not the algorithm. It's, it's not just algorithm. people are addicted to these things. I mean, they sorry, the to... negative side of it yes. deals with the algorithms. Uh, for instance, on YouTube, there's certain words that if you audibly say out loud in video, will immediately get either demonetized or like cut down from the algorithm. And that's crazy. Like, compare that to a 2006 YouTube, which obviously it was the Wild West. It was like the first year it was out. But to think of where it's gone and how it's evolved over time is almost, it's insane to me. It's, it's becoming not cool, honestly. Uh, some people are even saying, like, why do, why, why, why uh, what was the thing recently? There was a joke on TikTok that transcended to, to Twitter or X. And it was like, uh, we should make podcasting equipment more expensive to like try to gatekeep it from people who like they don't want to <laughs> listen to. And I'm like, oh, am I one of those people? Like I, <laughs> I spent all this money on this stuff. And, and now we are those people, Mitch. I'm just really disappointed in, in the direction of this cult-like elitism in the design community. And I wrote about it in today's article a little bit. Um, and, or I guess if you're watching this, it's about two weeks ago or so. And I, I'm just kind of disappointed that like the design community is all about trying to be the highest, you know, most social influencer, uh, trying to get the dumbest posts promoted, asking the stupidest questions on Twitter, nothing thought provoking, just engagement seeking. And I'm like, you know what? I could play this game or I could sacrifice the follower count and sacrifice the ad revenue that comes with that and not do that and not sell my soul. Or is there a balance in between that I should strike? I don't know where to sit on that. I'm trying to figure that out, honestly. It's a sad world. And I think worse than than the Twitter slash X designer cults and those, uh, you know, peppered up questions for people that drive engagement. If you ever jump on Pinterest and end up in design Pinterest land, that is like scum of the earth design <laughs> influencers. I've never seen worse. And it's, it's such a mockery of the influencer culture that is YouTube and TikTok shunted into the design world and if you end up down the rabbit hole it's fantastic to listen to it's like these people 
stake their lives on this kind of content. It's like 10 websites that should be illegal. And it's, it's like coolers and like vectorizer and things like that. Tying to that, I want to ask your opinion because I've, I've been thinking about tweeting about this, but I know that a lot of colleagues of mine would not appreciate it. And oh, here we actually, go. Yeah, I want to go all into these controversies. Like, like the whole podcast last episode and then the last newsletter, you know, two weeks ago, <laughs> Dan Hollick's episode and newsletter, uh, they're about like people shunning others uh, because they found a better solution, but the consensus is stuck on an outdated solution. And that outdated solution isn't as good for people as the updated one. And so you're saying like, you know, this site should be illegal. Well, actually, people are literally saying that because it's not accessible in this capacity, it doesn't match these standards, it is illegal. And it's not true. Some some cases it's true for, for, for you know, for the sake of the argument. But um, saying that this design is really bad. Um, because I didn't follow somebody else's guidelines that were unelected bureaucrats. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to say that. I think that every design should be treated in context of the design. And if it's usable to those people who are using it, then who cares, right? Um, something that's been on my mind, though, was that I'm not going to answer the question. I want to I see you answer the question first. I've seen a lot of these, like, site inspiration things, newsletters, whatever, there's another one coming out um, by Fonz Mans excuse me, uh, called uh, Off Grid. And it looks great. It looks pretty cool. Very attractive. Dark mode. Awesome. And there's more of these things that are popping up here and there. There's different Twitter accounts that they simply find somebody else's work, copy the image, post to their tweet and they just tag or just in the second tweet tag or acknowledge the person who uh, created it. And the problem that I'm seeing with this is that it's, it's, it's fine when you're trying to help somebody get fame and whatever, but now there's ad revenue involved on Twitter. So they're using somebody else's work without permission to generate revenue and not share that with the creator who actually created that image and did not give permission for it to be shared for money. What do you think of that? Do you think it's bad or good? Do you think it's okay? Do you think that people should be allowed to do this? Do you think that there's implications to it? What do you think? This is Rid and Daryl in a nutshell. I mean, yeah. half these guys' Twitters do that. And I wouldn't say it's hundred percent wrong i think both of them and it's not just them there's plenty of designers when you say wrong do this. what do you mean by wrong does it mean like illegal or like bad judgment i would say it should be frowned upon okay. um i mean i've run into it too rid shared a site that i did last year and a, a cool part of it and i was like that's awesome thanks for sharing it but the uh, the sort of like callback to me doing it or the company I was doing it for was so low uh, in, on that totem of him sharing it out and the engagement that he got from that as opposed to the work I did. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little maddening. But at the same time, I, nice that it was shared. I mean, I've done it too. If I see something cool on the web, I'm, 
I'll, you know, take a video of it, share it to story and be like, this is sick. Uh, I'm very specific about how I tag people and acknowledge the work they did uh, as opposed to just hiding it in like a second tweet or something like that. I try to be very upfront with it. Um, I, I also try to call out, I, I feel some of them will also share and just say, Hey, look at this cool thing. They won't say that they didn't do it, uh, but they won't say that they did either, obviously, because they didn't. Um, but I, I see that sometimes. I'm like, I wonder how many people engage with this. Let's say it's got like 2K likes, something like that. I wonder how many of those likes are looking at that and associating the person who shared it as, wow, that's so cool. They did this. When in reality, they're just sharing somebody else's work. So I'm seeing from Off Grid, it says one of the tweets that they tweeted was, uh, W-I-N-C, so Wink Branding by A-U-R-G Studio, ARG Studio. And it's just four images in the in Off Grid's tweet, which is not their images. It is the content from... Uh, send me this. I want to see it. Our, here, I'll send it to you. And, um, and it has 12,000 uh, views on it. And again, I love elevating other people's work and sharing it and trying to promote it and giving them the credit we're due. I think that's awesome. But the problem I have with it is that now this account is going to make money because mm -hmm. another person made something and didn't get a cut of that share or didn't share that cut, whatever it is. Um, and another one, 17,000 views. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's like not some sort of like envy where it's like i wish my views were getting that many per you know per tweet but i also feel kind of dirty like taking advantage of somebody for, it's like it's like if i was on instagram and i started instagramming somebody else's body images like that would give me views sure if i took a like a hot girl like if, I'm, if i have my girlfriend's account i just started tweeting or, or, or taking her, her images and putting out mine like yeah i'm gonna get a lot more views I just don't, I have something slimy about this where it's like, oh, we found a way to make money by not doing the work, but by stealing other people's work and then repurposing it in a different format. It's not even like they're critiquing it. It's just that you're showing it. So I'm wondering, is it okay to then like use that artwork and then publicly critique it? And then, you know, cause like I did the same thing with like um, Shopify, like an image from Shopify's new design system. I got 68, 69,000 uh, views. And nice. it, um, you know, got a lot of, got some hate, got some love, but I was being honest. I was trying to say, say something about the, the spacing and, and, and whatnot. And I wasn't just saying, here's a picture of the thing. Here's a, here's another screenshot. Here, you know, I think I'm adding more value by critiquing it. Whereas a lot of these people, they're just sharing other people's work on their business accounts and they're profiting off of it. And I just don't see how that's like, okay, like, do you, like, is that, okay? like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to think about it yet. Like, um, no, like, and now and we're in a weird world of Twitter trying to make, trying to give creators, make creators money on everything, which is fair. I get that evolution as a business platform. Um, but it, it does bring up these questions. And before, I mean, it, I wouldn't say this is a new concept. I mean, right now, yeah trying to get ad revenue or like whatever else Twitter is pushing for right now, that is a very tangible element. That is money on the table. 
Before though, it was, it was indirect exposure by sharing somebody else's work. That is very cool. You will get engagement. You will get followers, whatever you are trying to promote yourself of your own. You now have a larger audience to push that to, which leads to more money for you, uh, by profiting off somebody else's work, uh, very indirectly, but the, the construct still exists. And now we, yeah, we do live in this world where that, that indirect connection has become a very direct connection. I mean, hell, Twitter offers tipping on uh, certain accounts now. I find that like mind-boggling, especially since the the meme has gone around over the past few months and like, oh, you did this thing, and like it's just the picture of the guy like showing the tip screen of like 10, 15, 20% like custom tip. And now that exists in this app. And who are you going to tip? Are you going to tip the guy sharing everything or the account that shared the really cool thing they worked for for months and shared it one time because that was it? Probably the guy that's sharing all the things. I don't know. I'm not, not liking this world very much with the tw- Like the thing is, the sad thing about this is that like it actually means that the world's doing better. Because we live in a time where this is possible. Before this wasn't possible... And we didn't have the luxury of this stuff. Somebody actually today tweeted or did talk, shared to Twitter, whatever, that, you know, we're actually in a worse recession than the Great Depression. We're in a worse Great Depression. We're actually in a silent depression because the cost of everything is so much higher and we have more debt. And all this stuff is actually so far apart in terms of the contrast of what money we have and what money we don't have. The Great Depression, we actually had more money saved per person. More people were able to buy things because they were cheaper than they are now with less debt. So it's kind of insane to see the, the economy of that now that I think about it. But we're, we're still living in a greater time. And the ability to be able to <laughs> the, the, be able, the ability for the biggest problem to be that we're stealing people's work and sharing it is a good thing. It's not good that we're stealing people's work. But the idea that that's the worst thing, you know, Absolutely. on the internet. It's a first world problem. Yeah. It, it, but it still sucks because now there's new etiquette involved. Now there's new, oh, we have to talk about it this way. No, we have to. And I don't want to apply more rules to it. So I feel like either I should just quit the game or participate. Because <laughs> oh, I don't see I this like a balance. In, in engineering, I mean, the, the initial thing you brought up being, you know, this, this sort of unappointed jury of, uh, designers saying this isn't the way to do it. This is the way to do it, and you know, shunning those that go against the grain. In engineering, serverless is the biggest thing right now. And there's uh, there's one company that's got a triangle for a logo that has been very clearly pushing serverless for the past couple of years and introducing a ton of ways that you can pay for servers on their own platform now in recent months and the past year, which you know, fantastic. They want to push something that's great. What they do is employ a team of dev rels who also push for these things. Uh, their founder and said dev rels and other people in this uh, sort of little clique, I'd say, uh, all invest in the same companies. They all, uh, of course, they're all serverless. And I, I had a friend more recently who, you know, brought up, hey, serverless isn't for everybody. And, you know, put that on Twitter and just got absolutely chewed to pieces by these cronies. And it's insane because these people have serious influence and 
they're not pushing serverless because it's you know objectively better for everybody it isn't i you know it's it's slightly growing more complex there's abstractions being made um and it costs more money at the end of the day for smaller platforms but they're pushing it because they make money from it and while design sits here and you know, I'm not saying it's not a problem by any means. There's money that's being handed out to uh, people who aren't doing the work. And uh, that, you know, that is an issue for concerns. But at least it's not to the tune of like ten to $20,000 per year, like the average person on this engineering side of the war is facing right now, because one product is being pushed. And uh, I mean, these are serious investments and it's a lot of money being pushed around and it's, it's become this like bully culture if you're not into it. So what is the uh, solution? What do we do about it? Well, we need more companies that actually have a, some type of following that produce software for the sake of software and not so, for the so sake of money. More, which... more Twitter accounts sharing other people's work. No, 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 no. <laughs> we need it. I, that was the original reason I joined DigitalOcean. Um, they, you know, two and a half years ago now was they had such a strong community structure and, uh, you know, money's great. They offered some great products at the time. Um, Jesus, it went corporate real fast after we IPO'd uh, and it, it turned me off from a lot of what the original value proposition was there. Mm. And I feel more of these open source companies, I mean, especially in the boom of the late 20 teens tech companies IPOing, not just your Dropboxes, but everybody and their mom who has a few dollars and a few users is IPOing. And, you know, these companies that were fantastic originally cared about software, cared about their community. Uh, they cleaned house, got a new CEO or somebody at the C level. They brought in all of their people from their past IPO. Mm. They turned into a very corporate structure. Everything that was care and community died out and they IPO. And that is insane to me just how much that's taken over open source software. So I'd say, Ed, I, I talk about the tech renaissance sometimes. Well, honestly, we should have an episode on that because I love it. Um, where uh, the, the short of tech renaissance in my eyes is, you know, you had all of these engineers and designers that said, bang is the answer. I'm going to go work at Netflix and make 250K a year. I'm going to do four hours of work each week and I'm going to call it a day. Well, Netflix... Meta, Google, Apple, maybe not Apple. Uh, a lot of companies laid off huge portions of their workforce last year. All of these people that had been very cozy in very high-end IC roles now saying, well, I've been sitting on this startup idea for four years now, but I'm not going to turn down doing four hours of work per week and getting paid not to pursue that startup idea, basically. Those people didn't have jobs. And I could... I've, I've personally seen five people start startups in the past six months because of it. Three of them are bootstrapped. And I mean, we also had the bank failure with uh, SVB earlier in the year. I think that was also a huge testament to startup founders saying, ah, should I raise around or should I bootstrap this thing? Bootstrapping is hard. I should probably raise around. 
because that's the that's the tried and true method of having a startup. You get told, hey, uh, these this bank that's been around that's funded startups, and you know if you're a startup, keep your money here, just failed, and now you've got a bunch of startups now saying maybe I should bootstrap this thing. And I feel that is the the tech renaissance in a sense is all of these smaller companies popping up that are bootstrapping that are diving into open source they clearly care about community otherwise why would you even have a startup i mean if you have a startup just for money maybe you make it odds are you probably won't you have a startup because you care about the product you're creating you're more likely to make it and it's cool seeing so many of these smaller operations pop up bootstrapped they care, and I hope that that takes down the behemoths that have been selling snake oil for the past couple of years. So aren't these people who are tweeting the stuff snake oil salesmen, or are they are they the ones trying to bring down the behemoths? No, they are, because they're getting paid by the behemoths. Vercel <laughs> is paying these people. That's the triangle company right there. They're paying these people to sell their shit, and... Sometimes it's great. I'm not going to knock Next.js. I use Next.js on basically any project I work on, minus one or two. Um, but the abstractions they're creating, the huge push for serverless is insane. And they, they just pay you know anybody who's got an audience and willing to promote it to say, if you're not using serverless, fuck you. And that's not how we should be thinking about any of this stuff. Because in five years, serverless is just a recycling of 15 years ago and how we thought about things before everything went static. Now we're back to using servers. And in five years from now, we're going to flip the switch again. Yeah, the pendulum swings and everybody's saying, this is the true answer. Five years from now, you'll be saying the exact opposite, the same way we always have. That is my rant on serverless. Okay. I have no opinion because I don't care about serverless or servers or how it works, to be honest. All I care about is people getting the stuff that they need to do their job really well. And that designers themselves are not just following people blindly and just saying, ooh, I love your work. And it's not even their fucking work. It's somebody else's fucking work. I just hope that we can recover as a design community to, to actually celebrate the great things we're creating together and help critique each other to become better instead of this whole like, oh, I want you to do this one thing for me, you know, retweet for my like or whatever it is. And can I use your work for this thing that I'm doing? Um, I think that ultimately it's going to just bitter a lot of people. And if we don't step back and say, okay, it's really, you know, the money's nice, but you can make that money other ways that are more honorable. That's how I look at it. If I can make money in a more honorable way, more trustworthy way, I can keep an audience for longer. They're not going to jump ship to the next best thing or the next best person because they trust me more uh, and trust you more. And I want to help them grow their skill sets. But I don't want it to be about trying to scale that thing so fast. It's just going to make me money. I want it actually to, to impact people positively. And I don't think it's currently... I think the trajectory for many people is not in that positive light it's it's more towards the negative side of things where they're going to fade in a couple of years when they give up on these accounts because they have something better that makes more money and whatever maybe that's fine maybe i'm looking at it all wrong maybe this is totally the way to do it because that's what makes money that's what gets clicks and you got to get your nuts somehow in this world 
But I just, there's something about it. It's like, why can't we just, I mean, they can do it. Why can't I just do something that actually has meaning and purpose behind it that I love? doesn't suck my soul away. I don't feel dirty afterwards. And also I help people. That's that what I hustle like. culture, man. Five years ago, people would be saying, oh, I make YouTube videos, but I don't make any money doing this. I love it. <laughs> I really do, but I'm not making money. And we'd be sitting here saying, yeah, oh, I, I don't pay, co- pay content creators and uh, all these you know, people that are, I'd say, are now phonies because well, the I, style I don't, took I don't, off for them. I don't have a problem with the money part. The money part isn't like the problem. It's, the, it's, it's not sharing the revenue with people that deserve it. And that help the people making the money make the money. I think that's the problem. But I support everyone trying to make money and trying to get their thing going and trying to you know be financially stable and 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 self funded and bootstrapped and and create things in the world. I love that. I just hope that we can do it in an honorable way that's not going to sacrifice your soul and it's not going to leave you forgotten in the history of time. Totally. I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I feel we need to be doing things because we care about them. Um, well, sometimes you got to do things because you don't care about it, too. Like, not because, but in spite of not caring about it. But I think that if you care about it, you're more likely to enjoy it. And therefore, you're more likely to stick to it and be consistent and also learn and grow in, on top of that. So that part I agree with. Absolutely. It's the... Uh, what do people say about uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? It's that kind of thing where like if it is something you love that uh, the money's going to follow uh, as opposed to doing something specifically for the money, which I think everybody's guilty of to some degree. Uh, but the, the more you lean into that curve, uh, the, the less you're going to enjoy your day. <laughs> I'm just like scrolling through Twitter and seeing a bunch more of this stuff. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I'm trying to find something to say, but um, yeah, it is what it is now at this point. I guess we'll have to wait and see what, what you and I do, see how we progress in this and not share people's work without the permission and still give them revenue if we were, were to share their work in a way that was just just the work and not a critique or not like a discussion around it. Because um, I think if you add value to it, then I think it's fine. But it's like kind of like if you use somebody else's image, you have to change, I think, the rule like 30% at least of the image for it to be your image, something like that, right? So yes. it's like the rule of thumb at least, 30 to 40%. I think it's fine. I think that's... Just that's flip okay. it horizontally. It'll be fine. Just rotate nobody it. Else, nobody Just rotate it three degrees, it'll be fine. But I think that, you know, there's an element to this that is similar to spec work. There's an element to it that's similar to... Um, you know, trying to get people to to um, ideologically align to you, in a in a sense, it's a much deeper thing that I don't want to get into this discussion. But I just don't agree with it. Have you That's seen the? Have you seen the um, the AI? Not AI Twitter accounts, but like look at uh like old historic videos or like one of those accounts where they'll be like here's a story about something cool in history and like Mm -hmm. very narrative specific accounts the first 10 comments will literally like you can tell whoever it is just took that story put it into chat gpt and said summarize this or give me another fact about this person and they'll just chug that into a tweet 
underneath of this tweet. And like, they're not bot accounts. I like, I'll click into these accounts. I'll see them like, no, this is an actual person. They're just using this as a strategy to like drive more engagement and like, oh, it's going to lead to ad revenue at the end of the day. Um, Mm. I find that crazy. Like, that's insane. Are there more than just, hey, let me follow the trends and share something that everybody else is doing on Twitter? They're outsourcing that to AI. It's fucking insane. So, wait, the AI is being turned into bots that are then commenting. No, no, it's not even a bot. It's simpler than that. Like, they'll literally just take the story, put it in chat GPT, and say, here's the prompt. Give me another interesting fact about Robin Williams or whoever it is the story is about. ChatGPT will say, oh, did you know that Robin Williams did X, Y, and Z? They will take that, put it into a comment underneath of the original tweet, and that's it. And it's usually like the first 10 tweets on Mm. these types of viral accounts that are all just that. And they're real people commenting these things, but you can tell it's AI. And and so so they're separate than the original tweet person, but they're 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 just commenting on the tweet. They've taken the content from that tweet, repurposed it into ChatGPT and said, hey, Give me another fact about this story, this person, whatever it is. And they'll take the output of that and comment it under the original tweet. And they always get like 200 likes, some shit like that. You'll see people <laughs> then commenting to their comments saying, wow, this is so insightful. Thank you for also sharing this other thing. And it's like, son I'll, of a bitch. Another observation I've noticed is that I have like a mental health tab on Twitter of like mental health specialists that I've found on Twitter, which there's not many good ones, to be honest. And I'm trying to like think about things to help with Brittany's stuff that she's working on. And they tweet literally like, pay therapists more. And that's the tweet. And I'm like, <laughs> the how did this get so therapists. many? Like, how much? How, like, I don't understand this like tweet farming and this like image content creation. Like, we actually are creating a podcast that then can be chopped up into different clips spread across the internet. It can be turned into a blog post or topics, whatever. But we're putting so much work into it that I think it actually has value to it. I think so many of these interactive things, they're they're just content farming. And it's just it's lowering the quality, the IQ of society. But I think we should stop there <laughs> because I'm going to get black-pilled real fast. I don't want to <laughs> go any further on that. Um, next episode will be a lot lighter. How about that? And I guess because yes. you brought Robin Williams, rest in peace, another person before we go, uh, John Warnock, uh, co-founder of Adobe dies at age 82. Rest in peace. Thank you for giving us an amazing career in design and art and creativity through your tools. Can't thank him enough. You know, our jobs are created from Adobe, essentially. Hey, all the tools <laughs> the modern version. Adobe yeah. takes a lot of heat, uh, rightfully so in this stage, but any tool we're using day-to-day basis in design is probably tied fast to how Adobe came out with it the first time, uh, which is super cool. Uh, any of the evolutions we've seen, and they were at the forefront of it, and that's, yeah. that's super cool to see. Yeah, 100% true. All right, until next time. Until next time. Enjoy this one. Cool. All right, see ya.